Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Again. Good morning. It's so wonderful that we get to hear week in and week out from the Lord. And God has not been silent. He has spoken. And I, for one, I think we, for many, are thankful that, that God has spoken. He hasn't been silent. He's not left us to ourselves to just try to figure out life. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? He's told us. And it is a privilege of the redeemed to come around the Bible and to hear from Him. And as we hear from Him, we always want to keep our eyes open and ask that He would open the eyes of our heart. We want to listen. We want to hear. But we want to be changed. We never want to just stay unmoved. We want the Word of God to change us. And so I'm going to pray again and ask for the Lord to do that. And then we're going to talk about Jacob and Esau again this morning. And talking. Uh, the title of the sermon out of Genesis chapter 25 is called Birthright for stew. Birthright for stew. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. It's just a privilege to hear from you. And I just thank you that you've been intentional in your communication to us. That you've had it written down for us. And not only have you written it for us, Holy Spirit, you come and help us to understand the words that you wrote. And so, it's just a privilege. We thank you that the God of the universe is going to speak yet again to us this morning. And as always, God, I, I'm errant, but you're not. So work perfectly this morning through imperfect speaking. Just work in each of our lives and help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So, kids in the room, have you ever tricked your brother or your sister? Will anybody tell me a story about when you tricked your brother and sister? You played a prank and freaked them out. Anybody? I want to hear it. We want to hear it. The stage is going to be yours. Anybody? Okay, we got one. Let's hear it. Okay, Lana, will you stand up and tell everybody? Okay, the spotlight's on you. Okay, we want to hear a story of when you tricked a sibling. Okay, yeah, well, turn around here. You got this. You got this. Okay, let's hear about it. There we go. There we go. There you go. There you go. So, uh, oh gosh. <laughs> you got this. You got this. You can pull a pass if you want. We can go to somebody else. Okay, pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? <laughs> that is okay. Fisher, do you got one? No? You don't have one? Oh, Taylor. Okay, Taylor's got one. I don't know. Taylor's got one? No? Okay. Well, Taylor, you can pull a pass too if you want, but we're, we're okay with hearing mean ones as well. <laughs> is, it, is it appropriate? Go for it. Okay, tomato sauce and cheese. Yeah. So I was tasked with babysitting the two of them for years. They drove me crazy. They would do stuff to like my gloves and anyway. So one day I decided I was going to cook them lunch. I made them that and put the wet cat food. <laughs> And just told them they were 
How, how was it, Lucas? Was it, was it pretty good? Are you just hearing this for the first time? <laughs> There's many worse. But that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay, there you go. That's good. Uh, sibling rivalry. There's some fun elements to it, right? Uh, it can be very funny. Scaring a brother or sister can be a wonderful thing. Uh, sibling, sibling rivalry has been around for a very long time. And so we see this in Jacob and in Esau. We see that Jacob is a trickster. And uh, I wanted, wanted to open with that because I wanted to get in the scriptures and help you realize that they were brothers in the same way that you are siblings today, there's been sibling relationships down through the centuries. That this is not kind of disconnected in a kind of an alternative universe where uh, siblings didn't play jokes on each other, they didn't try to trick each other. Uh, th- this kind of behavior, the Taylor and Logan and uh, Lucas behavior with the cat food, has been around a long time. And uh, we see that in. In Jacob and Esau, I want to go ahead and read the passage and then uh, talk through a couple things before we get into it. So verse 29, if you would, read with me in, in Genesis chapter 20, 25, or follow along with me. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, Has anybody ever heard of the marshmallow test? The marshmallow test. Okay, over here, yes. We've heard of the marshmallow test here in the front row. The, the marshmallow test was put out in the 60s, actually done in the 60s, and it was published in the 70s, 70s the research was, by Stanford University, and it was about uh, delayed gratification. And the idea was they would put kids in a room and, and tell a kid, you can have one marshmallow. And they put a video camera on them and said, you can have one marshmallow, but if you wait 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And so the idea was, okay, we're going to observe and see what kids can wait for 15 minutes and get the second marshmallow, and then what kids would be able to, or wouldn't be able to wait, and they would just grab the marshmallow and eat it up. Years later, they did with this with adults, and it was very funny, and you can look this up on YouTube. Um, and uh, the story then was published years later, and I have it here somewhere, I think, unless I left it in my seat. Baby, did I leave that my seat over there? I did. Okay, let me read that. Uh, clearly, I'm unprepared for this whole mallow thing. Um, and here's, here's what was uh, said about this. The choice was simple. One treat now or two treats later. The researchers left the room. As you can imagine, the footage of the children waiting in the room was entertaining. Some kids jumped up and ate the mar- marshmallow as soon as the researcher closed the door. Others wiggled, bounced, scooted in their chairs, jumped up and down, and tried to restrain themselves. Some kids, you can see they're like, they're like holding their hand back like this, you know, acting like they're really restraining themselves. themselves. Uh, eventually gave in to temptation just minutes later. Finally, a few children did manage to wait the entire time. As the years rolled on, these same children, they grew up, and the researchers, they they, they conducted follow-up studies on these students and tracked the children's progress in a number of areas of life. And what they found, it really was surprising, they said. So these... uh, 
the ones who were able to delay their gratifications, the research each, uh, of each child they followed for more, to four, more than 40 years, and over and over again, the group who walked, who waited patiently for the second marshmallow succeeded in whatever capacity they were measuring. In other words, the series of experiments proved that the ability to delay gratification was criti critical for success in life. Now, some of you in this room are very impulsive, and some of you are very, not impulsive, the exact opposite. If you have a decision to make, you want to pray about it for 10 years. <laughs> okay? And then some of you are kind of right in the middle. But typically we have either, like, really, they, they call themselves deci decisive people, but really they're not decisive, they're just rash. They just, I want to get it, and I want to get it now. Okay? So if you got the idea on Monday, you got it, whatever it is, on Tuesday. And you've sold whatever you can on Craigslist to get the money for it. And others, they just wait and delay and never make that decision. But as we see, there's clear research that delayed gratification is, in fact, um, it's important in life. Uh, what matters in life? That's a huge question. Huge question. What is valuable? Different people answer that question in unique ways. Jim Elliott, one of his favorites, the famous missionary who is a, a martyr for the faith, uh, Elizabeth Elliott's first husband, said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. See, he saw this truth in the scriptures and in life that there are some things that are simply more valuable than other things. And there are some things that, are willing, that we should be willing to give up in exchange for this thing that's more valuable over here. We're going to see this in the life of Jacob and Esau with the whole stew, stew birthright thing. So let's, uh, let's get into it looking at verse 29 and 30. Once, once really happened. Once upon a time, we could say, it really happened. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Jacob and Esau were about 15 years old at this time. I stopped reading, by the way. Uh, it was a rather normal day. Jacob was hungry, so he does what people do when they're hungry. They start making food. He starts making stew. Uh, you ever been hangry? Pregnant ladies in the room are like, yep, right now, make this quick. Hangry, you get hungry, what do you do? You make yourself some food. Pizza rolls, pop them in, 30 seconds, or hot dog, you know, 17 seconds, in my microwave anyways. And there is a hot dog, food. You make food when you're hungry. Esau was out hunting food. He was tired, exhausted. And he has a reasonable request. Hey, uh, Jacob, can I have some of the stew? Seems just like a very unsuspecting story. Things get serious in verse 31. Jacob makes it serious. He's like, yeah, I got an idea. If you want to you wanna bowl this stew, how about giving me your birthright? What? Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now, wait a second. Come on, Jacob. That seems to be a bit much, right? I mean, the, the brothers, for goodness sake, like, hey, how about like, yeah, okay, you tired? Here, here. Yeah, I'll eat half, you eat half, we're good to go. Uh, no, he's looking for an opportunity, apparently. Come on, Jacob. Jacob apparently knew that the promise was going to continue through him. We can imagine Rebecca, his mother, telling him about what God had revealed to her years before, several years before, 16, 15 and a half years or so before. He knew that the promise was going to come through him, and if that was going to happen, he would need to get what was coming to Esau by the right of his birth. He was the firstborn son of Isaac. And so here's an opportunity. 
And Jacob knows the value of this birthright. Does Esau? That's the question. We're talking about value here. What's valuable? What's valuable? For this to work, okay, for this to work, Jacob would require of him feeling the pains of hunger. We don't know how hungry he was, but for this whole thing to work, for this setup to work, where he would become the one who would get the birthright, Jacob would have to deal with the rumblings in his belly for just a little bit longer. He would have to delay the gratification that that stew, that stew would bring him and give it up to get something that's going to be more valuable. I mean, it's clear. Everybody's got it, right? Nothing hard about this. Okay. Esau, on the other hand, wants stew so bad that he has value uh, confusion. Okay, so what happens? Things got serious. A deal was suggested. And then it keeps going. Look in verse 32. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? In verse 32, we see that Esau is an exaggerator, to say the least. Any exaggerators in the room? If it's $2.99, it was actually only $2. Me and Jordan do that all the time. Right? Yeah, baby, it's only like it's only like eight bucks. It's eight ninety nine. That ninety nine doesn't mean anything, right? It's only eight dollars. Uh, exaggerators of stories, you know. You ever told a story? And you're like, man, how can I spice this thing up a bit? Um, Esau is an exaggerator. You ever be like, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. Okay, you've been there. I could eat a horse. Okay, like who eats horses? But you could. You're that hungry, you know. Uh, we've, we've done this before. We've spoken in hyperbolic ways. We've, we've exaggerated our need for something. And this, again, it just so personalizes it because we've been in the place that Esau's been before. Jacob, I don't get food right now, bud. I'm going to die. I need food now. Just give it to me. I'm exhausted. I've been hunting for 12 hours, and I just need some food. Okay, so he exaggerates. Doesn't have much of a concept of reality. We know he's exaggerating because after he eats the food, he gets up and walks off. If you're at the point of death, you're so famished that you're about to die, you don't get up and walk away after one meal. And every commentator agrees that this is just wild, outlandish embellishment from Esau. He's simply saying, I am so hungry I could die right now. So he says, what, what is a birthright to me, even though he wasn't at the point of death, in that moment, all he could think of was that pot of stew. He didn't think about the inheritance. He didn't think about what was coming to him as the firstborn son. He didn't think about God's promises. And he didn't even think about the promised Messiah, the promised work that God was going to do in the future. To him, what was front and center was that red pot of soup. Gotta have it. I want it so bad. Give it to me, Jacob. He says, of what use is it to me? Use. He uses the word use. What is that going to do for me, the birthright, in this moment? Will a birthright sustain my belly right now? Jacob, pull your ear up to my belly. It's, it's growling. I need some food. Hook me up. So he says, of what use is it? If it doesn't help, I don't want it. And this is the dangerous pull of pragmatism, Okay, of whatever works, that's what I want right now. Self-medication. Addiction is a form of self-medicating. I want to make myself feel better now, so what am I going to do? I'm going to do whatever I can to make myself feel better. I want that feeling in my stomach to go away, so what do I got to do to get it to go away? That's what I'm going to do. 
So what's healthy, what's right, what's godly, put to the side, whatever I want now. This is a, actually a pretty common sentiment in the Bible. Uh, there's a story in Jeremiah chapter 44. You don't have to, you don't have to go there. Um, but we see this in chapter 44 of Jeremiah where the people of God struggle with this. They have this idea that, that whatever works, that's what we're going to do. And we're tempted to do that in life in so many areas. Just whatever works. i got to get through this now. Whatever's easiest, whatever will make it happen, and I can do it and get away with it, get over it, get past it, that's what I'm going to do. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15 through 19, tells an interesting story. The prophet Jeremiah is sent to Israel, and he is faithful to the Lord. But revival does not come. Jeremiah, it's interesting, he does what the Lord wants him to do, and he ends up being in a pit, in prison, beat up, depressed. Like, my gosh, what is going on, Jeremiah? But Jeremiah is faithful to the Lord, and he doesn't get wild, outlandish results. Where the, he does what God wants him to do, and revival doesn't come. Jeremiah would not get hired in ministry today, because fruit has not followed him. Do you realize that there is no amount of, no, no matter how good I could possibly preach, if I got to be a ten times better preacher than I am right now, it does not guarantee real fruit. It doesn't. If we just it, it, do everything right, if we do everything missionally we're supposed to do, do everything as a church, if God doesn't give the increase, if it's out of season, we can't make results happen. Now, false results can happen, and it does all over the place. And quick people are quick to say, well, where there's massive growth, where there's crazy explosion amount of people coming in, where the big TV preacher, whatever it may be, results prove the work of God. And that is not the case at all. Amen. Because Jeremiah is being faithful to the Lord, doing what God's called him to do, and nobody repents. And you know what? That may, this right here, we're going into a new building right now. This may be the largest attendance we ever get as a church, ever. We may, not, we may never grow. I pray and ask that we do. I want people to meet Jesus. I want there to be baptisms. I want us to grow. I want that. But if we don't, that doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. This doesn't. And if we measure, especially in ministry, our success by how this is working, that's a recipe for disaster. Now, if we're being unfaithful to the Lord... And we're just jerks to everybody and we're wondering why we're not growing when there's no fruit of the Spirit. Then we've got to ask some questions. But Jeremiah comes and he is preaching to the people of God in, in chapter 44, verse 15 to 19. And listen to this. Then all the, men who came to knew, all the men who knew that their wives had made an offering to the other gods, and all the women who stood by the great assembly, all the people who lived at Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. The prophet of God, who said, Thus saith the Lord, the people of God look at him and say, We're not going to listen to you. What? But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out our drink offerings to her as we did both the Queen of Heaven... Or, and our fathers, our kings, and our officials in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, we've been consumed by the sword and by famine. And pouring our drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by sword and famine. And the women said, 
10, the woman said, When we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and poured out our drink offerings to her, what was it without our husband's approval? Was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image, and poured out drink offerings to her? They essentially said, hey, when we were making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, everything was great. We were prospering. Things were going well. The rains were coming. The crops were producing. We're not going to listen to you and repent. We're going to keep doing what worked. Whatever works, that was their plan. That we will serve. This has been a theme just through the scriptures. And it's a temptation today. Whatever works. Whatever works. Not to say faithfulness to Jesus doesn't quote unquote work. But we want results the way we want them in the timeline that we want them in. Now. And if what God desires once for us requires waiting, patience, character development, being forged through fire, I don't want any of that. 33, it continues back in Genesis chapter 25. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate, drank, rose, and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. It's a done deal. Esau takes the soup. Jacob's okay with delaying gratification for just a little bit longer because he knows I'm going to get something more valuable than my belly being full. So one identifies what really is important here and the other disregards what's really important here. Because they couldn't see past this moment right now. Got to see it. By the way, just a life issue here. Okay, just like a sidebar. This same thing is the reason why most people in their 20s get themselves in financial trouble. Because they want to live the life of their parents now. A guy named Larry Burkett one time said, we want to live like no one else now so we can live like no one else later. And if you can't delay gratification financially... You're going to get your lot of self in a lot of trouble. And then when you get in your 30s, you're going to realize like, what did I do? What did I do? Okay, Parents who have kids in the room here, and this is what I want to try to do. Okay, I like, let's train our kids to be able to delay some gratification. Okay. Sidebar. Now back. I'm still learning this. Because when I want a Dairy Queen blizzard... Oh, man. Jordan knows about my secret blizzards. She sees the can every once in a while. Like, small M&M cookie dough. Whew. Verse 34, Esau, we see that he despised his birthright. The word in the Hebrew uh, means that he counted it of, of no value. It is birthright. He didn't even see it as valuable the promises of God, the purposes of God, the lineage that would come through him, he didn't see the birthright as being as valuable as a pot of stew. The purpose of God, what is that to him? The soup is what I need now. And the crazy thing is, it satisfied him just enough to get to the next moment. Yep, that's good enough. What's that matter to me? I didn't give up anything. He walks off. Satisfies him just enough. I think this launches us into a big question of, okay, why is it that one, why is it that Esau, there's something valuable here in Jacob, and they just see it differently? And it challenges us on two fronts. It challenges the non-believer in a specific way that we're going to address, but then it challenges the believer in a specific way 
in a different way. In Matthew chapter 13, I want you to go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at two small parables that Jesus tells. And he's going to teach us what is eternally valuable. The God who speaks tells us. Again, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess or come up with our life theory. God just tells us. It's our responsibility just to agree. Okay, yep, that's right. So for the non-believer out there in the world, or if you're in this room, the challenge before you is what, what matters in life? What's valuable? Okay? So what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his immense sorrow, he, oh, uh, I'm sorry, what was that word? Then in his what? Read it in there. You guys got it. Joy, 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 joy. Then in his joy, he goes and sells a few things that he has on Craigslist. Or what does it say? He sells all that he had and bought that field. Similar parable, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is the value of this treasure or this pearl? Is it big or small? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. If you actually found this, you're walking around in a field, and you were kind of going to look for some property to buy, and you saw kind of like a mound, looked like it had been just recently kind of dug up, and you walked over there, and you found a briefcase full of old, old, old coins and dollar bills, and counted it up, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like two and a half million dollars. You, you bury it, don't tell anybody, and you're like, whatever it costs, uh, credit card, whatever, I'm going to get in this field because I know what's in this field. Right? And you're going to live large. We're going to go buy it because what's in the field is more valuable than what you have. It's just valuable. It's worth giving up whatever you need up to get it or to attain it. And the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like saying homelessness in the kingdom of God is greater than the riches of the world without the kingdom of God. If you know the king and live in his kingdom, if you see it, then you see that there's nothing in the world that's as valuable as that. And if you have that, you have enough. More than enough. Because it says, in joy, in joy, you would be willing to sell everything. Think about everything that you own. Kids, think about all your toys. Fisher, what's your favorite toy, man? You got like a favorite fishing pole? What do you got? Xbox. Xbox. You love your Xbox. Isn't that cool? Okay. Xbox. What do you like? Owen, right? Lego Batman. Owen. Lego Batman. Lego Batman. So cool. Okay. John Henry, you got a favorite toy? No. Your bull riding stuff. Okay. Some cool toys. Adults, you have your toys that you like. You have the things that you like. And here is the kingdom of God. So valuable that everything you own, your baby, let's go. We got everything. We're selling our house. We're selling our car. This is how valuable that it wouldn't be a sense of loss at all. There wouldn't be a gut feeling of, oh, I've got to give that up. That too? You feel that tension when it's yard sale season? What should you give up or what shouldn't you give up? You're like, but I know I need to get rid of that, but there's memories attached to that. Not to Jordan. She'll throw everything out. Okay? But to me, I've got memories. Okay? And I, I could be a hoarder. That's why God puts people together for a reason. I... <laughs> I, it's like, I can't get rid of that. That was a card that my grandma gave me when I was three. Okay, sentiment, memories, your stuff has memories to it. 
And if you had to, without any other reason just given, hey, go and sell everything, get rid of everything, you wouldn't do that in joy. You'd be confused. You'd be frustrated. It'd be hard. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this stuff. I work for this. And here, the parable, Jesus is saying that this is how valuable the king and his kingdom is. That you would feel no sense of loss if you saw him and it for what he and it is. You would, it, would, it would fill you with joy to be able to gladly sell everything to get it. The pearl of great pl- price. The same thing. Now, this is a salvation question. Do you have this pearl of great price, or do you need to remember the joy of your salvation? The value of what you have received is in front of you again this morning. And I want you to compare everything that you've ever been given in this life, everything that you have worked hard for, even those things you have sweat equity in, And I want you to think about the contours of Tim does woodworking. He does a fantastic job. If you're in the market for buying anything, it's handmade. Go to Tim Bueller. Free plug there. Uh, He can make anything. And just he knows what he makes because he puts himself into it. Okay? And the value of what you have received in Jesus. It's like counting all of that. It's like getting, it's everything that we have and everything that we've made, everything that we have bled over or worked to get. You have what's more valuable than any of that. Now experientially, think through that. Okay, I want you to think through that. The things that you have, you get a lot of joy from. The things that you have built, the things that you have made, the things that you have worked for, we get joy from. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? But I want you to, I want you to like, think about the joy you receive from stuff that God's given you. Now, the joy that's eternally valuable in Jesus is infinitely more than that stuff because we find out it's so much more valuable. That There's a a joy that's so big, that's so huge that we have in Jesus that you're joyful to get rid of those things that bring you joy. So see that this morning. Remember the joy of your salvation. Joy in Jesus. Living with Jesus in His kingdom changes everything. It gives us perspective. It gives us perspective in life. And it actually brings peace and patience in the face of difficulty. If you have Jesus, if you have an eternal hope of what is to come, it will help you immensely, brothers and sisters, in this life. When you are suffering, and you will. Okay, you will. It's inevitable. The bowl of stew, whatever it may be, can never satisfy like Jesus does. And if you have Jesus in your possession, if you you have Him in your possession and you are possessed by Him, It changes everything. It builds us into men and women who are women and men of steel. Who can stand up to the storm in in weak power, weak power, and survive giving glory to Jesus along the way. To have joy, a deep sense of anchor to your soul in seasons like the Caldwells are going through right now. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Okay, now listen to this. If you've not suffered much, okay, that verse is not going to... You're going to have a smaller frame of reference to understand this verse. And that's the category that I'm in. If you have suffered greatly, 
in your great suffering that cracked open deep crevices of pain and emotion in you, if that is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, then that glory that's going to be revealed must crack into some deep, deep emotional joy. It must be so unbelievably powerful, so glorious, it's just indescribable. Because you felt your suffering and you know the depth of the pain, of the pain that you felt. And if that's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, then brothers, sisters, the glory that's going to be revealed is just beyond our wildest imagination. If you've suffered little, look to those who have suffered much. Don't just look on them with pity. Invite yourself into their suffering. That's what we do as Christians. We invite ourselves in. We don't stand far and distance ourselves from those who are in pain. We invite ourselves into it. And if we have not suffered personally, welcome to a life of suffering because when we want one suffer, we all suffer. And we invite ourselves into it to bring conduits of grace and mercy to them. We don't walk away and just... Uh, I don't want that. We invite ourselves into it. And if we know the value that we have received in Christ, the value of Christ, it changes everything in the present. Future glory gives perspective and direction for present living. Now we get to a couple things about present living. Now for the believer, for your life, if you know what's immensely valuable, more valuable than anything, that the pot of stew, whatever it be in your life, if you, by the grace of God, are like Jacob and see the value of that birthright, the value of the purposes of God, the Messiah, the God of the universe, if you've seen the pearl of great price, if you have the treasure that's hidden in a field, Jesus Himself, then it changes today, tomorrow, the decisions that we make. By way of example, I want to give you some value order. Value order in my life. And then I want to challenge you to consider your life and what it is that you value from day to day. Energy and time should flow from the top to the bottom of this list. From the top to the bottom in my life. So my critical thinking, my time, my energy, my, amb my ambition should follow my five callings. You're going to have your callings. It'll clarify as I say this. My first calling as a man is to be a Christian to be a Christian. All of life flows from our walk with Jesus. That's my first calling. That's what's most valuable to me in my life. More than my wife, more than my son, more than this, certainly more than preaching, is my walk with the Lord. If I got shot through the neck one day and can't speak, my life's not over. I'm walking with Jesus. Because my identity isn't first and foremost getting up here and preaching. It's not my first calling. My first calling and your first calling in life. This is value here. Is with your walk with the Lord. Just developing a walk with Him. Loving Him. Learning from Him. Two, I'm called to be a husband. And if you're called to be single, okay, then which God does, then your callings will be a little bit different here. Second, I'm called to be a husband. Before I'm called to be anything else, even a dad, I'm called to be a husband to my wife, Jordan. I'm still on this path. I have not, men, maybe you can teach me here, I've not learned the path of becoming a perfect Christ-like husband. Now, Jordan would certainly disagree with me on that. But, but I'm called to be a husband. That's my energy, my time, my ambition, my critical thinking. And I am committed to growing in that. Men, that's... That's valuable. Your wife is valuable. The pot of stew is not as valuable as your wife. 
ladies, for your husband. Third, I'm called to be a father. Not everybody's called to be a father, but I am. So my calling is, what's valuable is my son. I want to invest in my son. I stole an idea from Ryan Deaton. I'm going to give him something for his birthday. My son, he's turning three. I'm going to give him a little case, a wooden pocket knife. We're going to build it together, and it's going to be something from me to him. And I want to be intentional as I raise my son. I'm going to make mistakes along the way, but he's valuable to me. It's more valuable than, he's more valuable than work. He's more valuable than, he's valuable. He matters. He's more important than stew. Fourth, I'm called to be a friend. If I don't know how to be your friend, and I'm learning how to do this, I certainly can't be your pastor. If I don't know how to be a friend, it's hard to be a friend the older you get. You realize that? As Christians, our life is about being, that's valuable, friendship. Christian friendship. It matters to know each other, to text each other randomly. You know how important that can be sometimes, get an encouraging text message. To be able to go out to eat with each other, to laugh, okay? To have times where you just are silly together, where it isn't just we're memorizing the Bible together. It's, you know, you're running around and you just know each other. Your son walks out of the bathroom and said, Dad, I pooped a huge man turd. Well, you know, we're people here. Like, we're friends. There's a humanness to us. This is not a holier-than-thou existence here. Okay? Learning to be a friend. That's valuable. Friendship. Fourth, I'm called to preach the gospel. That's my, or fifth, that's my fifth calling. I'm called into pastoral ministry to shepherd. It's a gift. It's my fifth calling. And I should. We should work hard, men. Okay, work, it's hard. We should work hard. But your work is not what's more valuable than these other things. So critical thinking, time, energy, what's valuable in your life? And if you know Jesus, and Jesus then directs you to say, here's, what's, here's what I've said matters most in your life, then it's our responsibility here this morning to agree with Him and say, yes, what's more important than anything in my life is my walk with Him. And then secondly, my marriage. Third, my parenting. Fourth, friendship with the people of God. Fifth, it's my work, which I need to do hard and be critical in my thinking about that. But it changes the way you live. If you know that Jesus is more valuable than the pot of stew, it changes everything. So the question I have for you this morning as the team comes up, we're done here. Do you have values that are out of order? Do things need to be reshifted? Because Esau, in Genesis chapter 25, in the moment, he, he didn't see the perspective, he didn't see the big picture, he didn't see the long view, he didn't see what was important, he did not care about the purposes of God, or even the Savior, Jesus, he just cared about soup. And it was enough. Just, yeah, alright. But it's not enough for us. Soup, temporary, what I want now. We're a changed people. The Holy Spirit knows how to come. I don't need to give 45 different directives about how the Holy Spirit may work. The Holy Spirit knows how to work in your heart. So we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to do what He wants with each one of us as we conclude and as we sing. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. Thank You for the children that are in the room. I, I ask God that we would be as parents, and if we don't have kids, the other people in this room would be able to model for the children that are in this room what matters most in life. I ask God that we would live differently than the world, that we'd be changed, that we've, we found this pearl of great price. Jesus, you've, 
you're valuable. And that our life would be ordered in such a way that we fall in line and we say, yeah, Jesus, that is more important. And I'm just spinning my wheels here and I'm missing an opportunity to be able to invest in my wife. I'm missing an opportunity to be able to invest in my kids. I'm missing an opportunity to be able to invest in my grandkids. I'm missing an opportunity to be able to whatever. Because I've got this value thing. It's all out of order. So Jesus, just help us. I trust that you're going to. Thank you for your kindness. Your kindness, so God, leads us to repentance. And as I stand in here, I have brothers and sisters, family that are forgiven people. Forgiven. Not just a little bit. Like halfway, God's not like you're like, hey, I'll, I'll forgive you and then I'm going to see if you're really genuine or not. Uh-uh. The cross of Christ, we have forgiveness. Holy Spirit, you come after us. You don't let us just stay in the mud. You clean us up. You change us. So that's what we're asking you this morning. Just change us. Help us. We trust that you're going to. So let me pray. Amen. Let's sing.